This is Guns and Butter. Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, Will the Trump Presidency Prevail? Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we'll discuss Michelle's latest articles, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Campaign to Destabilize the Trump Presidency, and Color Revolution Against Donald Trump. Michelle Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on the program. In our last interview, Political Crisis in the United States, recorded before the U.S. presidential election, you predicted that regardless of who won the election, be it Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, that the new U.S. administration would be a dysfunctional one that might lead eventually to a situation of martial law. Do you think that events are playing out the way you thought they might? Well, in some regards they are, because Donald Trump has started his first days in office, and um, the major conflicts which existed both prior to the elections as well as after the elections are still there. Um, He's clashing with the intelligence community, He is um, the target of media smears, which are ongoing, particularly by uh, CNN, but uh, with other mainstream media. And I should recall that CNN, just the day before his inauguration, I think it was two days before, had actually envisaged a disaster scenario in which the elected president would be assassinated. In other words, it was a terror event which was part of a special CNN program. And um, in fact, the the subtitles were, were, I mean, incredible because they said, who is designated survivor at the inauguration? Disaster could put Obama cabinet member in the Oval Office. And they had built a scenario of assassination of the president, the vice president, members of Congress. 
Now, from my standpoint, that was not sloppy journalism. That was an act of propaganda directed against the elected president. But I noticed that in the immediate wake of his inauguration, the campaign by the media has gone into full blast. I mean, they haven't sort of gone back to normalcy whether you know where they're looking at the president, they're criticizing him. No, they're continuing. They're continuing the smear operation. Now, is it dysfunctional or not to have a president who wants to normalize relations with Russia? Uh, is it dysfunctional to have a president who has differences with the intelligence community, who is ultimately going to? have to operate in tandem with these agencies. Some people call that the deep state, namely the, the CIA, uh, Wall Street, uh, the oil conglomerates pull the strings. But at the same time, within his administration, you have people who are firmly committed to waging war, his appointee to the Pentagon with Mattis, the mad dog, and then Tillerson and the State Department. But on the other hand, this president is elected and starts his mandate under circumstances which are exceptional, namely a mass campaign against him with the possibility of an impeachment, uh, with various actions against him. and. These actions are not necessarily motivated from the grassroots of society. They're from a competing faction uh, associated with Hillary Clinton, but it's a competing neoconservative faction. And I think essentially the issue is foreign policy. It's the conduct of foreign policy. It has to do with relations with Moscow. It has to do with the war in the Middle East. It has to do with China. In some cases, they coincide with, you know, Trump coincides with the neocons, and in others, he doesn't. And so we're, we're dealing with very uh, significant clashes within the establishment. And um, Trump doesn't quite conform to the dominant neoconservative perspective which ultimately is also very much tied into U.S. intelligence. You write that what is at stake are fundamental rivalries within the U.S. establishment marked by the clash between competing corporate factions, each of which is intent upon exerting control over the incoming U.S. presidency, which you've pretty much just explained. How would you describe these two competing corporate factions in terms of foreign policy? Well, first of all, we should understand that competition within the establishment is ongoing. It's not normally covered by the media, but the banks are at each other's throats. We, we know that. Uh, they, they're competing, they're, they're expanding their, their clutch and so on. Um, so that there are conflicts within Wall Street, there are conflicts in virtually every sector of the corporate world, so to speak, and both within the United States and also internationally. 
and uh, those uh, conflicts are, are more or less innate to the capitalist world order, and they've been the object of a lot of scholarly analysis, and people don't seem to realize that. There may be a Washington consensus on certain things. They'll say, well, Washington consensus uh, on IMF reforms, but ultimately, who is going to pick up the pieces when they're you know, when there are bankruptcies, when there's destabilization, when there's a recession or, or, or a crash of, of, of financial markets. And it's also the fact that all this is very much manipulated. We know that, that these financial institutions can manipulate markets, and ultimately they, they manipulate markets not only to appropriate the wealth of, of, uh, of the millions of people who, who invested in the stock market, but also they direct this against their competitors. And, uh, and we saw that in 2008 when, the, when, you know, when the, the stock market collapsed and General Motors was, was the object of, of major attacks by particular financial institutions. So that, that is part of, of the way capitalism functions. Now, within that structure, there are what I would call cross-cutting alliances, which are very complex. Uh, uh, they're cross-cutting alliances within the, the corporate establishment, and they're also cross-cutting alliances in the sphere of foreign policy. And we see that emerging, um, where the Russians are now in alliance with the Turks, with Turkey, uh, they have an alliance with China, and uh, within the realm of foreign policy, uh, there are certain things which are happening which, in a sense, are upsetting the monolithic uh, foreign policy stance which unfolded during the Obama administration, and which, were, which also led to a number of, of, of new uh, conflicts and wars, namely Syria, uh, the Ukraine, Yemen, and, and of course the confrontation with China. And I can see that, uh, that in effect, what is now occurring are certain shifts in those alliances. We can look back in history to World War I, how shifting alliances occurred and ultimately were conducive to World War I, the, the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente. And here you have a uh, I think in most recent developments, the fact that Turkey is now, which is a NATO member state, is actually working hand in glove uh, with, uh, with Moscow. And also, Moscow, of course, is working, is supporting the government in Damascus. And there's a campaign against the Islamic State, a military campaign. Uh, and we know that the Islamic State is supported by the United States. So, again, cross-cutting alliances. Turkey is a member of NATO, but at the same time it's working with the Russians. So that, uh, in a sense, the foreign policy, the monolithic foreign policy agenda of the neocons is, is under threat. And, uh, and then, of course, you have the emergence of Trump, who through his narrative, um, might, in fact, lead to the normalization of relations with Moscow. And that's something I think they do not want. 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that that a Trump administration would be less inclined to wage war or regime change than the previous administration. Well, if Trump wants to normalize relations with Russia, which is what he said during his campaign, then there must be a very powerful faction behind this attempted shift in foreign policy, don't you think? Well, absolutely, because normalizing with Russia has has very broad implications. It means um, it it means possibly a solution to the situation in Ukraine. Um, you know where they they will accept, uh, in fact, a situation which is already de facto the the existence of a of a Donbas uh, Russia political formation. Uh, which would emerge as a new country and, and which would be recognized, I think inevitably that is something which would have to be negotiated. It would also have a bearing on the war in Syria um, as to whether you know they continue uh, supporting the terrorists. I'm, I'm talking about Washington. Washington supports the terrorists. Everybody knows that, that al-Qaeda and ISIS are intelligence assets. And they're used as, as foot soldiers of the Western Military Alliance, supported by Saudi Arabia, etc. Now, is that is that option going to crumble or is it going to continue? And and that has a lot to do with Russia, Russia-U.S. relations. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show: Will the Trump presidency prevail? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your article, Color Revolution Against Donald Trump, you write that protest movements are envisaged alongside a campaign to disrupt. What is the hashtag disrupt J20 campaign? Well, I I think that that campaign ultimately didn't really reach its objective. It was, it was a campaign to disrupt the inauguration. And uh, we, we saw some events on January 20th occurring, but they weren't of much significance. Uh, in, and they certainly didn't question, they didn't really threaten the, the process of inauguration as they had initially set out. And my understanding is that that the disrupt process will be ongoing. It's, I don't think that the objective was really to disrupt the, the inauguration per se. Uh, we saw in, the, in the, the march, which occurred on the 21st of, of uh, January, one day after the, the inauguration, that was, of course, much more significant. And those who had, who had planned and engineered these protest movements uh, were, were not intent on actually unseating Trump or creating problems at the inauguration itself. But they create conditions which, which are intent on disrupting the functioning of the Trump administration in one form or another. And um, uh, those protest movements, those protest movements were essentially focusing on women's rights uh, they weren't geared towards anything else, anti-war and so on and so forth. And one thing which was quite uh, 
revealing is that they were taking place uh, not only in the United States, but in a number of other countries. And it, it raises the question, why on earth would people in other countries protest against the, the head of state in, in the United States of America rather than protesting their own uh, governments? Uh, and, and there, it, that provides, in a sense, the notion that protest movements internationally are recognizing that the U.S. presidency is some form of global governance. But it's also to delegitimize the U.S. presidency internationally, not only in the United States, but, but around the world, and using symbols and so on and so forth. Um, those marches of January 21st are of the nature of a, of a color revolution in, in the sense that they are uh, they're supported by uh, donor organizations. Uh, they are engineered. They're very carefully put together. Um, and they intended to question the legitimacy of, of the U.S. Uh, president rather than focus on important uh, issues such as the, the wars in the Middle East, uh, civil, civil rights, the broader issue of civil rights in, in, in the United States, and so on and so forth. Well, you write that the objective of the engineered protests, which has the support of U.S. intelligence, is to undermine the legitimacy of the Trump presidency, which you've just said. What is the point of rendering the Trump presidency illegitimate? Well, that's a very important question, because if it's right at the beginning of his mandate, it's it, it suggests, in effect, a regime change scenario. Uh, now, if we go back to, um, uh, to the period between November 8th and January 20th, uh, we see the emergence of a number of initiatives. One of the initiatives is, a, is, an, is an impeachment um, agenda. That impeachment agenda has already been launched. Well, it, it, it hasn't been legally launched, but it was the object of, of a petition. There were members of Congress that, that actually said, yes, we're going to impeach him. Um, then, of course, there was the campaign uh, portraying the president as an agent of, of Moscow. That hasn't disappeared. Okay? He's still an agent of Moscow from the, from the, from the perspective, let's say, of CNN. Okay? So uh, the issue of legitimacy of the presidency, I think it has been accepted by the majority of the American people. Um, but it has not been accepted by the power brokers, behind those who were behind Hillary Clinton and, um, and those who waged the media's campaign, because they're still at it. They still are presenting him as a, as a Manchurian candidate, and they are also um, questioning his legitimacy. So the, there's a smear campaign which is ongoing. There's possibility of impeachment, although I think it's pretty unlikely that that would actually succeed because still Trump has, uh, has uh, you know, the, the Republicans control the, uh, both the Senate and the House. So... Uh, 
the likelihood of an impeachment going ahead in the foreseeable future, I think that's pretty unlikely, but, but it's there. Those initiatives are, are being debated. They're talking points. And, um, and I don't think it's simply going to go away. And then there's, there's another aspect. Trump, of course, it will be the object of, of uh, grassroots protests. No question about it, because his policies are arch, it's an outright uh, perspective. Um, there's going to be protest, meaningful protest. But the problem is that a lot of that meaningful protest is going to be captured or kidnapped by the engineered protests, which are funded by, uh, you know, by major um, foundations and so on, via NGOs. In, in essence, you're going to have a situation where the engineered protests will override any meaningful grassroots protest movement uh, in the United States, um, whether it's from, you know, from African-Americans or from uh, Latinos or, or people broadly in the area of civil rights, anti-war movement, and so on and so forth. The anti-war movement is virtually non-existent. But at the same time, the, the engineered protests will seek to delegitimize the president in a way which has never been um, witnessed in U.S. in U.S. history. I mean, every single president that comes in is the object of protest. We know that. But but um, at the same time, uh, you know, the, the president is also the object of support. And and now we see something which is very pernicious. Um, I'm not saying this, I'm not, I don't want to sound apologetic for Trump, because I think that the protest against his administration is, is needed and is justified. But the people who are preventing this from occurring are precisely the, the, the so-called left uh, progressives, which are funded by uh, tax-free foundations and which are waging these engineered protests with the view eventually to uh, leading to something else, which, which could be a regime change. Uh, and, and some people have even intimated that he wouldn't finish his, his, his four years in office. I watched the video, The Revolution Business, which you have posted as part of your article, Color Revolution Against Donald Trump. What about a color revolution here in the United States? When Hillary Clinton gave her concession speech, both she and Bill Clinton were wearing purple. And it was very striking. It, I noticed it immediately. It was obviously planned. Well, yeah, I... I looked at that, um, yeah, that Hillary Clinton was wearing purple clothing and so on. Um, I think that that campaign is most probably going to reemerge, but not necessarily now. It might take place a little bit later. But uh, there's certainly the, the symbols of a color revolution made in America are there. And I, I should mention that those organizations which have supported uh, color revolutions in different parts of the world are the, are the same organizations which are now involved in protesting against, against Trump. And, and I think it's important to look a little bit at the history of color revolutions. 
uh, color revolution started, well, it started in the 90s with uh, regime change in Yugoslavia. And uh, it, it's worth noting that one of the main actors of this color revolution, which was supported by the CIA, was against President Milosevic. But then they formed, um, that was Otpor. Otpor was, was an organization which was, which was uh, opposed to Milosevic, which led to his downfall. And Otpor subsequently established a training strategizing outfit entitled the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. And it became some kind of a consulting outfit specializing revolution on contract to the CIA. And then uh, Canvas was uh, involved in, uh, in the Arab Spring, okay, 2011 in, in Egypt in particular. And it has also been advising and training uh, U.S.-sponsored opposition groups in, in, in a large number of countries. So that there is... Definitely, there is a revolution business. There is a color revolution which is funded dissent, manufactured dissent, where uh, foundations will go. You have the National Endowment for Democracy, um, Freedom House, and I should mention there are other foundations. Uh, well, of course, the Open Society Institute, but there are also foundations in Western Europe. There's the the Hans Seidel uh, Foundation, which is linked to the right wing of the Christian Democratic Party in Germany. And that uh, foundation has been involved in Venezuela, in Ukraine, and it is also now in Cuba. It has links to Cuban uh, NGOs and, and Cuban, you know, research institutes and so on. So that funding dissent is something which is really entrenched in the New World Order. The, the World Social Forum, 2001, was funded by the Ford Foundation. So that is the sort of international arm of protest. And they meet uh, in various locations. Uh, they bring together a whole bunch of, of NGOs. Many of those NGOs are then funded individually by, by various foundations. So in a sense, uh, Wall Street has captured the protest movements and co-opted them. This uh, whole process is, is certainly very relevant to what is happening in the United States. I should say the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was also involved in the, in the protest against Trump and uh, during the inauguration, well, they're also, in a sense, funded by foundations. Well, it's all done indirectly, but but you can say that the Ford Foundation, Gates Foundation, uh, as well as other foundations are, are, behind, are behind the Occupy Wall Street, done via the Tides Foundation. Uh, initially, it was launched by Adbusters. But again, there are always intermediaries in this process. And uh, I think really what is, uh, is important there is that we really don't have an opposition. We don't have a grassroots opposition where people join hands and, and, and say, well, no, we don't want this kind of government. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, and everything is segmented. You'll have uh, the anti-war movements. You'll have uh, the movement against uh, neoliberal economic reforms. 
then you have the women's rights movements, and they're all segmented. They don't, they don't talk to one another. The, the Women's March on January 21st was largely uh, focusing on women's rights and directed against Donald Trump, but there was nothing on the war in Iraq, there's nothing on the war in Syria, there's nothing on the war in Yemen, and then maybe token uh, reference to to the rights of, uh, of African Americans and the situation in Detroit and so on, that doesn't necessarily come up. It, it becomes very stylized. And, uh, and I think, essentially, if we want to really build a resistance to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, the U.S. administration, we have to break down these whole structures of, of funded and manufactured dissent which, which are really entrenched. I, I know from my own experience with the World Social Forum, well, there's some very good people in there, they're good NGOs, but uh, they tacitly accept that they're funded by the Ford Foundation. There, there was one group within the, the World Social Forum which protested, uh, that was when they were in Mumbai, and said, no, we can't, uh, we can't wage a campaign against global capitalism and the neoliberal agenda. And, and ask them to fund our expenses. And, uh, and then the Ford Foundation actually withdrew. Uh, but there were other donors that then came in. And at one point, they were even funded by the Ministry of Overseas Development of the Tony Blair government. Okay? So funding dissent is, is a very convenient process because then it leads to this engineered type of, of, of movement. Uh, which then forecloses the possibility of real mass movements. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Will the Trump Presidency Prevail? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, speaking of engineered mass movements. Let's talk about the what you have pointed out went global, the Women's March, the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump. Coincidentally, I had just watched a film. It was called Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer, produced by HBO, of events taking place in February 2012 in Moscow. And, of course, this is the a female punk rock band that was staging protests against the um, Russian Orthodox Church and uh, Vladimir Putin, specifically. There was no mention in this, in this film of any organizations behind these protests. I did notice, though, during the trial, one of the women was wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with the upright clenched fist, which is an emblem of Otpor, which you just mentioned, the Serbian NGO that played a key role in the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic. Then we have the massive Women's March on the 21st. I was seeing emails and Twitter feeds in the weeks or days leading up to it telling women to knit pussy hats. And then I saw pictures online of plastic garbage bags full of these pink knitted hats that they were handing out to people. And I thought to myself, this is too much of a coincidence. Pussy hats pussy rioters, and of course, like I said, they had uh, that emblem of the clenched fist. That's also on the Occupy poster that you posted, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, really, we are in a sort of a copy and paste situation where I don't know who is behind the pussy riots, but I, I suspect the clenched fist started in Yugoslavia in 1999, uh, 2000, and then we find it in various um national events in different countries and then it lands up in in the arab spring then it lands up in occupy so that the clenched fist becomes a symbol of various organizations in different countries and the reason is that they're supported by the same ngos and those ngos are supported by the same foundations and so that it it becomes a logo it's a bit like Osama bin Laden, you know, you'll find his face everywhere where the CIA has, a, has some kind of subsidiary um, Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, okay? They'll have their symbols. And what it reflects is, is, is the fact that these foundations and NGOs, they operate internationally and they use the same symbols and they copy one another. And as I mentioned there's an Otpor Canvas CIA model, okay? Otpor being the, the organization which then founded Canvas. And then Canvas, uh, of course, is involved in training, it's involved in public relations, and, and so on. So I, I think we can understand uh, that uh, the clenched fist um, symbol, which prevails ultimately in, in all these these various uh, locations it really is uh, the the product of a, of a of a global agenda which um, oversees protest movements in different parts of the world the women's marches that went global on the 21st of January the day after Donald Trump's inauguration this kind of a mass of demonstrations, these things have to be planned way in advance, don't they? I would suspect, first of all, if you want to to plan a march, which is uh, carried uh, in a large number of countries simultaneously, you have to have a big organizational structure of partners, you know, partner organizations which work together, which uh, coordinate when it's going to take place and so on and so forth. I would say, yes, it, it, it requires a lot of money as well. You have to organize these things. Of course, you, you're not necessarily paying the protesters, although some of them might be paid, but um, you have to have organizational skills. You have to have communication. It just doesn't emerge like that, that on the same day, in different parts of the world, you you come up with a with a, a mass movement with similar concepts. And and ironically, what what struck me is the fact that this mass movement in different parts of the world is is directed against the U.S. president and not against the the local prime minister or head of state. Okay, if it occurs in France or in or in in Germany uh, and so on. And, I mean, it's also occurred in Asia, in, in Japan, in the Philippines. Let's talk about this new concept of fake news. Now, this meme of fake news, this was rolled out as an attack on the alternative media 
but it looks like it's been turned around and it's being used on the mainstream media. I mean, there is Donald Trump in his first press conference uh, before he was sworn in, actually, refusing to take a question from CNN and accusing them of being fake news. I thought that was pretty funny. Well, <laughs> the, the initial campaign, of course, was launched by, by the mainstream media, I mean, it was the Washington Post that that started up the campaign against fake news and which was essentially directed against the independent and alternative media, mainly the online media. So we were the targets. And then, of course, uh, the, the independent media responded to that, uh, particularly with regard, let's say, to the war in Syria, for instance, where they showed in, in effect that the mainstream media was involved in, in fake news. They accused the independent media of being fake. They had more than 200 alternative media which are listed by a, a website called Propaganda or Not, Prop or Not. And then the, the Washington Post covers that, uh, and then it becomes, of course, uh, an object of debate. And the backlash from the independent media is to say, well, prove it, I mean, uh, CNN is, is involved in persistent uh, manipulation of images and concepts. Uh, I've been following them for quite a number of years, and I, I recall uh, that when they were covering the, the protest movement in, and riots in, um, in Tibet, they switched the images and took the protest movements were taking place in India. Okay? They switched the countries. When the BBC was covering the so-called liberation of Tripoli by, in fact, they were Al-Qaeda uh, freedom fighters, they showed images of celebration on Green Square in Tripoli uh, and what we saw were people waving Indian flags. They had taken footage from another country and they slashed it in. We've got many, many cases of fake images, um, manipulated concepts and so on and of course the alternative media uh, responded to that and, and there's a truth movement within the alternative media uh, well there's also alternative media which, which may be funded by corporations, that's another matter so that the fake news uh, thing in a sense backlashed on the mainstream media and of course and also Trump because, because the, the, the mainstay of that fake news was, was also to uh, depict Trump as an agent of Moscow and to, to accuse Moscow of hacking the, the Democratic National Committee, uh, that this, of course, then became viral and, and it, it ultimately backlashed on, on the Washington Post, the New York Times, and, and CNN. But um, that... Uh, battle is certainly not over. And, and what is at stake at the moment, pretty complex, is that most of the corporate media are intent upon continuing this campaign against Trump, of smearing him, uh, both in his personal life as well as in his, in his politics. Uh, but then, on the other hand, you have some sections of the media largely those associated with Rupert Murdoch, uh, namely the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, 
uh, and Fox News, they tend to be pro-Trump, so that we have really a battle between competing media conglomerates. Well, and as well, the mainstream media has admittedly been infiltrated by the CIA for, for many, many decades, right? Well, of course, that's well-documented uh, Operation Mockingbird and so on. We know that the major news feeders, okay, both print as well as, as network television, as well as online, uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, uh, CNN, the Time Warner uh, conglomerate, they have historical links with U.S. intelligence. And they have embedded reporters which are linked to, to U.S. intelligence. This is known and documented. And, and it should not come as any surprise that they would, that they would act uh, in, in a way which is consistent with, with interests emanating from the intelligence community. Now, the question is, will Trump come to terms with the intelligence community on key issues? Uh, and, and those key issues, uh, I think there are two, as far as foreign policy is concerned. One has to do with the war on terrorism, which is the mainstay of, of, uh, of U.S. intelligence, namely to use al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, entities, which they themselves created as foot soldiers, and, and as mechanisms and as tools of conquest, ultimately. Destabilize countries, send in, the, send in the Islamic terrorists and destroy the country and pick up the pieces. Um, that's one. I'm simplifying, but, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda is a creation of the CIA. Osama bin Laden was recruited by the CIA. Now, that legend has to prevail, and and that instrument of intervention has to prevail, and they're going to hang on to it. Now, is, is Trump going to question that legitimacy? I doubt it. Um, but there may be areas in which there could be disagreements. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Will the Trump Presidency Prevail? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, the other one has to do with, uh, with U.S.-Russia uh, relations. And it also has to do with U.S.-China relations. And, and there are different possible perspectives there. Um, China is still a major trading partner of the United States of America. <laughs> and, uh, you know, without China, there's no consumer economy. Everything we buy is made in China. So um, there are different perspectives, and one has to be very careful how you handle that, because it has a very significant impact on everything which happens in the United States. We consume, on a day-to-day -day basis, goods made in China. Now, we don't want to disrupt that. And then there's another aspect which uh, economists barely mention, is that when you import goods from China... The GDP goes up in the United States, because why? Let's say you import uh, shirts from China at $36 a dozen, and you resell them at, at $36 a unit. And what happens is this adds to the GDP, is called value added, because the revenues generated are generated at the level of distribution, retail, and so on. 
And, and that is something when people talk about economic growth in the United States, they have to understand that a large part of that economic growth is not based on production in the United States, but on imports. And it's called import-led development. Now, of course, that is also something which is crucial to uh, the Trump narrative, because he has pointed to the fact that um, industry is offshored, and then he's blaming China for that. Uh, he shouldn't be blaming China because it's the corporations which are sending the, the jobs overseas. It's not China which is taking the initiative. Well, uh, Trump has been, and some of his appointees, have been attacking China. That's, that's a bit dangerous. Well, it's very dangerous because it will contribute to solidifying relations with Russia. Um, but it also has very uh, significant economic implications. Now, from my experience, I've visited China frequently the last few years, is that in the business community, the academic community, they tend to be very pro-American. If you talk to scholars at the Academy of Sciences or you go to the Shanghai stock market, everybody is pro-American and they value trade and so on and so forth. But it's, it's at the level of the political establishment, the military, where you have a certain reticence. But again, it's a very contradictory relationship that, that the West has with China. It's, it's also, by its nature, it's cross-cutting alliances. You have an alliance with China in the area of trade and, and economic cooperation, bilateral trade, and then on the other hand, you have conflicts in the arena of, of geopolitics. And so, it, again, it's a very complex relationship, but it's also potentially very dangerous because Lord China and Russia, of course, nuclear powers, and so is the United States, and any kind of military conflict between superpowers would lead to the possibility of, of a global conflict. Now, Michelle, have you described, it seems to me that you have described the uh, Chinese economy as dollarized. Is that true? And, and if so, what does that mean? I wouldn't say that the Chinese economy is dollarized uh, in, in the sense that now it's pushing for its own monetary system and it, it, it's protecting it. it. It doesn't have the same... Um, mechanisms uh, which other, let's say, other Southeast Asian countries may have. Uh, you know, I, I would say, let's say, the Mexican uh, monetary system is dollarized, okay? Uh, even Brazilian monetary system is dollarized because they have a link up to the U.S. dollar. I think that China now is moving away from this dollarized uh, monetary system, linking up to gold, with also instruments of control of foreign exchange markets. Now, you mentioned two things that were going to be very fundamental with regard to the Trump administration, the policy on the war on terror, and secondly, the foreign policy in general. Now, right after 9-11, the two things that happened, of course, we went to war with foreign countries, but also the Patriot Act was passed, which 
has led to basically a police state here in the United States. Now, assuming Trump's arguments with uh, the intelligence agencies are real, do you see any difference emerging within the Trump administration, for instance, with regard to homeland security? Well, this is a very important question. I asked myself that question when I when I heard his speech, because uh, President Trump has committed himself to eliminating terrorism from the face of the earth. You recall it. He said, uh, textually, we will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate from the face of the earth. Those were his words. Now, those words are not really that different from uh, George W. Bush's historic speech at the U.S. Congress on September 20th, 2001. We remember that because that's when he says, uh, you know, you're either with us or with the terrorists, uh, if I recall uh, his presentation. In, in other words, Trump is using even the same concepts because he says the civilized world, see, in relation to his predecessors, namely Bush and Obama. And his statement regarding Islamic terrorism bears a canny resemblance to the the worded script of George W. Bush uh, in the wake of 9-11. You're either with us or with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. Those were his words. Now, the question is, Trump has expressed some skepticism with regard to 9-11. And um, he has also said that he wants to open up a new 9-11 inquiry. Now, this may occur, but it may not lead to any departure in terms of uh, the global war on terrorism doctrine. But it's very important, however, to understand that that global war on terrorism doctrine is not only part of U.S. foreign policy. It is also embedded in U.S. military doctrine. Um, It's also part of the training manuals. It's also part of the indoctrination of the armed forces. Because when people are recruited into the armed forces, the first thing they're told is said, we're fighting a global war on terrorism, which gives them the the idea that they're doing something useful for for the homeland, okay? We're not going to say, well, we're going to invade Syria and Iraq and, and knock the hell out of the, and kill people there. No, you say we're going to go after the terrorists. And, and the heads of state, heads of government will say the same. And in some regards, they believe their own propaganda. When Obama says we're going to go after them, uh, of course, they go after the Islamic State in northern Syria and in Iraq. But we know fair well that the, that the Islamic State is, is a construct which is protected by the United States and its allies. Now, how far will Trump go into, into questioning the contradictions surrounding uh, America's uh, war on terrorism? And I think that's, that's a very uh, important question. Will Trump endorse the neocon consensus and uh, join what Bush and Obama... Um, have stated previously, namely, uh, you know, we have to go after the terrorists, etc., etc., or will he recognize that the war on terrorism is fake uh, and it's, it's essentially a campaign uh, 
um, a crusade which justifies a global war of conquest or hegemonic project, or will he wage what we might describe as a real war on terrorism by confronting the military and intelligence apparatus which covertly support the Islamic terrorists. And uh, that includes U.S. intelligence, the Pentagon, of course, NATO as well, uh, which was involved in recruiting the terrorists in Syria right from day one. It includes Britain, MI6, uh, Israel's Mossad, and so on. So will, uh, will Trump actually question that consensus? If he does, he's well, if he's, he does, he's out. He, he, he won't be able to sustain it. It's, it's very much entrenched in, in U.S. military doctrine. And um, I suspect he might, well, he, he's committed to going after the terrorists, but um, he's certainly not committed in going after the CIA, which supports the terrorists. And that's what I'm really suggesting, because lest we forget, al-Qaeda is a creation of the CIA going back to the Soviet-Afghan war. And um, uh, if he chooses uh, to question the fact that, that al-Qaeda is a U.S. intelligence asset, that means he's at war with the intelligence community. Well, yeah. He, I mean, he has said he wants to join with Russia and wipe out ISIS. Well, you, you see, I think he believes, he believes the official propaganda. He doesn't realize that, that al-Qaeda is supported by, by the CIA. That's very frequent, that politicians will sort of come to the acceptance that, that the terrorists are an outside force, that they are threatening America, uh, and they will believe their own propaganda. I think he believes his own propaganda. He's not going to, to budge on that. But the, the problem is, uh, if the Russians are, are going after the terrorists, which in, in fact happen to be CIA-supported, and you join the Russians in doing that, well, then you're in a big mess. <laughs> so, but the, 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 maybe the answer to that is that there may be some shift in, in how those terrorists will be deployed in future war theaters. But the stakes are very, very significant because uh, we have al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations in, in you know, some 40, 50 countries. Uh, well, I haven't counted them, but most of the Muslim world, you have al-Qaeda affiliated organizations, but you have them in, uh, you have them in, in the Russian Federation, you have them in India, you have them in Pakistan, you have them in Thailand, uh, you have them in uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Nigeria with Boko Haram, most of the Maghreb. Uh, and so if those uh, al-Qaeda affiliated organizations are viewed for what they are, instruments of conquest, well, he will have to accept that that strategy prevails. That strategy was established uh, by Brzezinski uh, during the Carter administration, and then it's, it's spread to, to other countries. And I don't think that Trump is going to intervene in that regard, because that would literally upset the whole uh, uh, structure of U.S. intelligence. And I think that U.S. intelligence prevails over the president of the United States. Michelle Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Well, it's delighted to be on, again on Guns and Butter, which is a very important program in the independent media.
I've been speaking with Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show has been, Will the Trump Presidency Prevail? Michelle Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michelle Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity, as well as co-editor of the anthology The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. All books are available at globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me? <laughs>